Hi everyone, welcome to one of the final installments of the NYU Wagner Review Policy Podcast Series. I'm Tiffany Rose and I'm Editor-in-Chief of NYU Wagner Review and I'm really excited to bring to you today Policy and Politics, a discussion with three New York City Council candidates. This year, New York City will hold one of its largest election seasons in decades with 35 city council and all five borough president seats up for grabs. The city will also elect a new mayor for the first time in eight years. I'm excited to bring you this discussion today and our moderator will be Bria Mathis, who is a contributing editor of NYU Wagner Review and chair of Wagner City Government. Today's candidates include Juan Ardilla, who is running to represent District 30, David Aronoff, who is running to represent District 29, and last but not least, Brandon West, who is running to represent District 39. Now, before we get started with the moderation, I'd like the candidates to introduce themselves. My name is Juan Ardilla. I'm running for city council in District 30 in Queens, representing Maspeth, Middle Village, Glendale, Ridgewood, Woodhaven, and Woodside. I'm running to bring in good public service, good representation, and people should vote for me because I will push for aggressive housing protections for tenants and small homeowners. My name is Brandon West. I'm running for city council in District 39. So that's Park Slope, Cobble Hill, Cowell Gardens, Gowanus, Windsor Terrace, Kensington, and a little bit of Borough Park. Uh, and I'm, I'm running to essentially make sure that we center marginalized communities in our response to uh, what's been going on right now. I'm running as a democratic socialist and I'm running also to really focus on uh, things that can really impact, you know, really bringing deep equity back to our, our society and in our city. So I think that's um, moving money from uh, policing to uh, social services. I mean, that's, I believe that's centering uh, communities that have been impacted by, edu you know, education injustices, racial injustices, and all the injustices that happen in our lives. My name is David Aronov. Uh, I'm running for City Council District 29, which covers Regal Park, Forest Hills, Kew Gardens, and Richmond Hill in Queens. Uh, I'm a first-generation American. I'm a community organizer, a nonprofit founder, and a proud public school graduate. Um, I'm someone who grew up in a union household, uh, and I'm running for City Council because we need a new generation of leadership at City Hall prepared to tackle today's challenges and build a stronger tomorrow. Uh, if elected, I will bring a unique perspective to this work uh, as someone with nearly a decade of experience working in city government uh, and on, you know, as, as, as somebody, you know, who is also the youngest in my race, but with, with this experience, um, I'll be ready on day one to fight for our fair share. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Like Tiffany said, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really excited uh, to kick things off. I know you all have been working hard on petitioning and of course deciding to start a city council campaign probably felt like a wild idea in the beginning. What were you prepared for? Like what did you in your mind think like this is what I should worry about, this is what I have to do. And then now that you're this far along in the process, what has really surprised you? So like what were you ready for? And then what kind of shocked you as you were uh, kind of doing things? Whoever wants to kind of jump in can start and we can just uh, round robin it. Hey everybody. 
so, you know, what I really expected or I would say didn't expect is that nobody knew what campaigning would be like during the age of COVID, right? There were different guidance, you know, guidance put out. Um, you know, there's this ever evolving, um, you know, situation. Are we reopening? Are we not reopening? Uh, it's, it's, it's really tough because COVID-19 has changed the political landscape, but also how people campaign, right? You can't have that traditional face-to-face -face contact. It's, it's a large focus on digital outreach. Um, but right now, like you said, Bria, with petitioning, it forces us to go out, right? We can't collect signatures online. We, you know, we can't um, just leave um, a paper, you know, in somebody's mailbox. Um, we have to physically go out on the street um, to get these signatures, to be able to get on the ballot. The state legislature reduced the amount of signatures required, but um, my campaign and what we really pushed for was to get the governor um, and the mayor to really suspend petitioning because of the pandemic. Um, and we were actually on a lawsuit for it. Uh, so that wasn't, you know, that effort wasn't successful, but um, there was a lot of noise and a lot of pressure made. Uh, as we have three months left uh, until election day, you know, with the vaccine rolling out, uh, maybe people will feel more comfortable to have that, you know, face-to-face -face contact, but we don't know yet that, you know, to, to be seen. Yeah, and I think they reduced it by, what was it, 70% that was needed? Yeah, so for city council candidates, uh, the legal requirement right now is 270 signatures. Yeah, um, I'll just add, just jump in there. I mean, all that is 100% true. Um, about you know so many unknowns and we're go this is a ranked choice voting ballot so that kind of which is the first cycle that we'll be doing ranked choice voting so like there's a, you know, a lot of voter education but really like what is the politics of that you know and how that's changing the tenor of the races themselves is like a big part of it also but i think in terms of like what is like you know the unknown of this i think you know i've done a lot of political work i've helped other campaigns i've you know know sort of the cycle what's like with petition endorsement cycle the persuasion cycle GOTV, all these things but it's also different from the vantage point of running even if you know what it's like as like a person helping a campaign it's totally different as a candidate you know um in terms of like what it, what it's like and like especially for the endorsement process just you know um because you only know the endorsement process that you've been part of and in learning from bringing on a lot of them from organizations it's like oh so a lot of organizations are you know, they're more relational it's it's less of um you're not really big on them being impartial. Like sometimes the decisions are already made before you even show up into the room and you, you know, you spend all this time on a questionnaire and you realize like, oh, there was no real uh, chance to have an impact on you know, the vote, the result, you know? And that's just like a thing that you learn just from like being on the other side of it as a candidate is like, oh, well, this is sort of what it's like when, when these things kind of play out this way, you know? So I think there's still like a lot to learn from the experience, um, even if you kind of know the nuts and bolts of it, which I feel I've been learning as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know it hasn't been easy and you all are working super hard. Go ahead, Juan. Yeah, but so I was going to say, I announced my candidacy almost a little over a year ago, a year and a week ago, and then 10 days later, the whole world shuts down because of a global pandemic. Um, so I would say that was the biggest shock I've seen, but it's also been this crazy ride where I started out essentially 
that's unknown in a district that doesn't really get, uh, you know, doesn't get the, the awareness that it probably, I think it should get a district that's been dis displaced and uh, underserved for so many years. And now we've built a large coalition throughout this last year where we were getting so much support, so much endorsements. Um, seeing how many people want to support my community has been the biggest shock, but the biggest serendipity, I would say. Um, and just seeing, you know, people coming together, people that you would never think would come together and they're all wanting to support uh, your messaging and your movement because it's something that's about public service, about helping helping people. Um, so I'm really, you know, it, it's been surprising, but it, I would say it's more of a seven, uh, serendipity. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this pandemic has really made New Yorkers come together in so many different ways and community building, I think has been such a critical element of the now and what's happening and how we'll be able to recover uh, post pandemic. And Tiffany mentioned you all are representing very different, very diverse uh, districts. And I think with um, over the course of this pandemic, we've seen people become really interested in like hyper local issues. So they're like, who's my council member? Who's representing me, right? But then at the same time, they also wanna see how that, per that person or people are performing when it comes to voting on particular legislation. So you have people calling out council members who weren't their council member. They're like, your voting is important. So with that, you know, you have your constituents that you represent, but then you also have the larger city. So I want to ask, like, what policy issues and what topics are most important in your district, but then also looking at a citywide level, uh, what do you see as being most important and top priorities as we look towards this next year? And also, I want to plus one Brandon's previous comment on endorsement process. Um, it's crazy. There's a, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, it. Even if you're you and you know the organization or the person align politically, um, there is a lot. I wouldn't say it's entirely true, but there is a lot of truth into the saying. It's not what you know, but who you know. Um, something to keep in mind for any folks that are, you know, interested in navigating the space. Um, in terms of policy points, or at least in my in my district, so I live in District 30 in Queens, so that's Maspeth, Ridgewood, Woodhaven, Middle Village, Glendale, and Woodside. We have the three biggest issues that we see are housing, but not in the sense of luxury developments. We have a mixture of tenants and small homeowners in the district. Um, if you are a tenant, 44% of the affordable units will be slashed by 2022. That is a projection. If you are a small homeowner, you are paying, uh, you're looking at foreclosures. You're also looking at some of the city's highest property taxes, even though my district is a transit desert that lacks resources, is far from Manhattan, far from employment opportunities, far from social services, um, and far from any interconnectivity. Uh, transportation, it's a transit desert. We don't really have subway stations at all. Um, there's only one train station between three of the main neighborhoods in the district. Um, our buses got reduced. And then education, I think, is something that we should be talking about in terms of overcrowding in classrooms uh, at, a, at about 106% capacity, at least before the pandemic. And again, wanting to get children back into the classrooms and profess teachers safely uh, in a way that is conducive to education, but doesn't harm people or put them at risk. Um, and expanding dual language programs. We have a beautifully diverse district that I think should be promoted in the classrooms.
Thank you. And then just uh, really quickly, so you kind of highlighted like what's happening in your district and then like on a citywide level, do you see those policy issues being the same or are there some other ones that you think are of note and that are important? Yeah, I would say the housing one. So my biggest policy push for housing is legalizing accessory dwelling units or ADUs. That's legalizing renting out basements, attics, garage, or sheds in a way that's stable and dignified for tenants. The reason we think is going to be, in my district, the land use patterns, it makes a lot of sense, but it's something that benefits New York City as a whole. Um, the RPA estimates 100,000 new homes will be created in New York City with this legalization um, because this provides affordable spaces for tenants that are looking at their for prospective tenants it provides relief for small homeowners that are struggling with the finances and it also creates safe union construction jobs for workers so this is something that i want to keep in mind as we're moving in a recovery um, and ensuring that we are providing work and employment opportunities for people yeah awesome thank you juan i mean i would say for the 39th um District uh, 39 is a very interesting district because it has, um, you know, it has an association of wealth just because Park Slope, you know, the neighboring Prospect Park, you know, is, is, you know, it was always had a, like a relatively wealthy community even when those park was first built, you know, but um, there's also South Slope, you know, which is like a fairly large Latinx community. And then you have like Kensington, you have a very large South Asian community and Grove Park, you know, we had the Orthodox uh, community out there, um, you know, and Gowanus, which is you know going through a lot of fluctuations, so there's a mixture of issues, you know, in terms of the district. Um, so it really depends like where you are and who you're talking to. But I would say that you know there's a lot of inequality in, in relation to the you know the multiple crises that we're having right now. You know, and um, so housing is still very important because it's a very rent you know um, burdened uh, district. You know, I say even about a third of the district uh, people who make thirty five thousand dollars or less. You know, so they're they're still like the issues that they're facing, but there's also like a hospital in the district, you know, and um, so there's a lot of people who work, who work in the, um, you know, in that industry and are like being impacted by sort of, you know, the lack of resources at that particular hospital or Brooklyn Methodist and just, um, you know, or downwind of those issues too, you know, but I would say that when we talk to folks, we talk, you know, we talk about land use and changing housing just because there's rezoning going on in a district, that's a very big one. Um, that's important to a lot of folks and use that as an opportunity to talk about how we can really change the land use process because there's no real tools to really have um, rezonings that at least, you know, are not developers led or developer centric, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the city planning is trying to create upzonings that, you know, they feel that developers would be supportive of rather than, you know, focusing just on the city getting resources to just build housing for people. And do and do it that way, which I think is like a more the better longer term thing, which is a citywide issue, I suppose, also to the local issue. Um, but on top of that, we've been talking a lot about desegregating schools, you know, because there was a process done in our middle schools in District 15 uh, to try and help desegregate the middle schools there, and that you know was a contentious one, but a one that a lot of people have gotten behind and support. Um, so that's like another issue, which is also you know a citywide issue, but. I'd say we, we're kind of leading the most with uh, the message of defunding the police and funding social services. And that I feel connects to the general notion of like how, you know, we push back on, um, you know, um, push back on um, austerity and focus on centering marginalized communities and, you know, the recovery. And I think, you know, that conversation, you know, bleeds into all the other conversations. And that's one that we've actually been talking a lot about in the district. And there's a fair amount of support surprisingly, 
uh, for this mm -hmm. com in comparison. So that I think has been big for us. So uh, District 29 in Queens covers Forest Hills, Regal Park, Kew Gardens, and a bit of Richmond Hill. Uh, there are um, several pockets of large immigrant communities that have been underrepresented uh, historically. We have the community that I come from, the Baharian Jewish community, uh, which is, you know, a fairly, uh, fairly new immigrant community uh, from the early 90s that came from Central Asia. Uh, and then we have a large uh, growing Chinese uh, population in this district. Uh, and from, from the outreach and the resources that we see from the city, there's always a lack of engagement uh, within these, these communities. Um, there are a number of issues that people are concerned about in this district. Uh, small businesses is one. Uh, you know, they estimate that after this pandemic, a third of small businesses will close and never reopen again. Uh, in every part of this district, I've visited small business owners and have spoken to them, listened to their struggles and frustrations. Uh, and they all have the same sentiment that the city did not you know, really do any outreach to them throughout the entirety of the pandemic. Um, and have they just have not felt supported at all. We know that small businesses need rent relief. We know that we need to reduce fines from uh, various city agencies. We, need to, we know that we need more outreach. We know that we need language access. Um, I think that that was a really big factor during the start of the pandemic, language access. You had materials being put out by the city that, you know, had a had a real two to three week lag in in other languages that people couldn't know emergency information right away which cost lives uh so this campaign is also centered around you know language language access and language justice um we are also you know this district has a large senior population uh and our seniors deserve to live in age in dignity and that includes fully funding you know senior centers expanding eligibility for home care streamlining the benefits application process um and also redu reducing the frequency of you know benefit recertification right but you're a senior you're on a fixed income you're not you're not making more money. You're most likely not going to get a new job. Um, you're really in that, you know, retirement phase. You're 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 living out your golden years, um, and we really need to we need to prioritize that and, and reflect that in our values. Um, another thing is, you know, education. Uh, we our our schools here are severely overcrowded. Uh, we only have two middle schools in this entire council district, and. You know, part of this campaign is also advocating for the building, you know, of a new, the construction of a new middle school in this council district. Um, you know, this can be done, but it just has to have the right leaders with the vision to see it through working with the school construction authority, working with the mayor's office, um, and, you know, allocating the proper funding. Um, then, you know, overall is COVID-19 recovery, right? How are we going to bounce back? Um, how are we going to, you know, make sure that when we reopen, that we actually stay open, but give people the resources that they need and, and different, you know, community-based organizations that have been providing tirelessly throughout the pandemic, food pantries, um, creating good union jobs, um, modernizing city government. Right now, city government is so outdated and archaic and and we see you know different portals and websites that are not user friendly um i i in, in wagner i actually took a course design thinking um and it, it opened you know it opened my eyes to to the you know user um 
user process, right? Of when you make a final product, how many different users experienced it before you actually put it out there? What was the implementation like? And I think we need to adapt, adapt that, you know, model to what we do in city government, because right now city government, you know, could be, um, you know, could be that, that the lab for innovation, but it's not. Uh, we have so many bright individuals that work in city government, and we also have a lot of young people, um, but we don't have leaders who are prioritizing efficiency uh, and modernization. And then, you know, really with COVID-19 recovery, we need to ensure an equitable COVID-19 vaccine distribution permanently because this will be an annual vaccine, right? It's not something that everybody's doing right now and it's done. Um, so what is, what is the, you know, what is the distribution going to look like next year? Um, is, are we going to go through an entire mess again? Is, is everything going to be streamlined? Are we going to have it easily accessible like the flu vaccine? Um, so this is everything that we need to look at, but we need to center the community in every single decision. Um, and that's what this campaign is about, community-focused leadership. Thank you so much, David. You covered such a wide range of things and really leads me into my next question and thinking about the future of the city's leadership and thinking about what the next mayor, you know, will be like. And so I wanted to ask you all, what qualities do you think are most important for the next mayor to have? And just encouraging you to also kind of think beyond some of those hard skills and maybe think about some of those soft skills as well. Um, what do you, what qualities do you think are most important for the next leader of our city to have? So I, I feel kind of struggling about this because as someone who's maybe like, you know, I push back on like the general norms of like what leadership is, people who walk into rooms and talk really well and, you know, who like, you know, you know, are louder in spaces and like work better alone. These are kind of things that we just assume leaders are doing. And like, I, you know, like to prefer to listen. Like I'm not, you know, the most extroverted person in, in the room. And I like prefer to work with people and groups, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're Wagner, you know, how much working in teams is a thing that they, you know, make you sure you're comfortable doing. So it's like, I feel there's a, there's a circle of all the things that make really good candidates. And then there's a circle for all the things that make a really good legislator. And there's like overlap, but there's not total overlap between those two things. You know, I think that like some of these aspects, you know, kind of lead to, you know, like people who are more inclined to kind of like navigate the politics and try and like protect yourself and protect your political career, as opposed to like, and making sure that you're getting, getting credit for things as opposed to kind of like hunkering down and getting the work done and not necessarily being like getting the credit for it, you know? And I think that like being like, you get rewarded for, for some things that are not, are not necessarily, that I feel makes the best um, all around legislator because uh, you get rewarded for flying in at the last minute and taking credit for something because you, you, you get that benefit. But, you know, were you there in the beginning, early stages, making sure like the right people were included and the communities were really engaged in the work, you know, like that doesn't always happen. But like that hard work is what gets better legislation passed, you know, and like the better politics gets be better policy passed. But it doesn't like, you know, you don't win any, you, you don't always get as much as you invest when you do it right, I guess, if that's how I'm trying to say it, you know, so I think it's like, interesting because the people who will usually say like I am I, I see myself in office aren't always the people who are willing to kind of make sure they do the things right especially on the policy side mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so I think it's like really trying to like find space to make sure you do that work correctly and then and, and like and be fine with the fact that like you're trying to reap something that necessarily is beneficial for your political career it's beneficial for getting like policy accomplished you know and yeah and that's that's the trick because this there's a there's a very much um you know, a notion of what like 
you know, elected officials are a notion of like what, you know, you know, you need to do and like people, you get that helps. That's very helpful, but it's also like, we are legislators, we create legislation and we like push policy. Like that's an important part of the work that I think caters to certain skill sets better than others. Uh, to add to that, I think that New Yorkers, you know, they're looking for somebody who can get things done, but they're also looking for a new face. Um, I think a lot of people are tired of the same old politics, but also what we're seeing right now is that a lot of, uh, a lot of people in New York City have, um, you know, voter fatigue. Right. I think the presidential election left a lot of people tired. Um, there are a lot of people, you know, we're three months out from Election Day. People still don't know who's running for mayor. I think that's a problem. Um, but a lot of things can change. Uh, you know, this time in 2013, you know, several months out, there were numerous candidates who people thought were going to win. And then Bill de Blasio ultimately ended up winning. And it was, a, you know, it was a it really happened within the last month and a half, two months before the election. Um, not even two months, but. I think, you know, we need we need a new leader who can, you know, cut through, you know, government bureaucracy, cut really through that red tape um, to get things done for New Yorkers. Uh, but we also need somebody to push back against the status quo, um, somebody who's going to think differently, somebody who's going to be innovative um, and, you know, somebody who's also going to be on the ground and really lis listening to different communities, um, making decisions that involve um, you know, a wide, diverse uh, range of stakeholders, and not just, you know, your inner circle. Um, you know, when you're, when you're the mayor, you, you really, in, you're inside of this bubble, because you have your advisors, you have, you know, this inner team. Um, but you, you really need to open up and cast a wide net. Like I worked for a city agency and to get something done, um, it had to go through like six layers of approval um, and it would really slow things down. Uh, even for like the, you know, very small, very small uh, things that we wanted to do. Um, so we really need to think differently. Um, but, you know, navigating a city of eight and a half million people with over 350,000 um, municipal workers also requires somebody who knows what they're doing, um, somebody who has been a manager um, and, and can navigate, uh, you know, the city's bureaucracy. I'll keep it short. I, if you're looking for a mayor, I would say someone that listens to the city council and listens to everyday New Yorkers. I think that can go a very long way. Um, someone that has alignment with what the climate is, someone that understands what the real issues are that will be responsive to everyday New Yorkers because that is who we represent. Um, someone that will personally, I think someone that understands that if you want racial justice, that includes housing justice, ensuring that every single New Yorker has access to affordable and dignified housing, implementing a housing first model, realizing that housing is a human right, not a speculative investment for New Yorkers, um, and someone that'll be there and genuinely be there to, to support us, not because they're looking for a political career. I just want to jump in and add to this, and I'll be maybe even more blunt. Um, so I was a management specialization. The advocacy specialization didn't exist when I was at Wagner. Um, but de Blasio is an awful manager, like just pound for pound, awful manager. And like what he said, you know, he said he put some good people into different parts of, of the city. You know, he's hired some good folks. He talks about problems. He identifies problems. And it does an incredibly awful job managing to get the work accomplished. And that I think that is like that. The fact that we don't think about management skills in the public sector and in movement work nearly as much is like destroying our causes. <laughs> and I think that that is like something that we really need. We need someone who, you know, 
is not awful to their staff, is capable of getting work accomplished and not, you know, in knowing when to respond to things going on, like the chatter and when not to respond, you know, de Blasio like very much respond. Like if you put out a post article about it, he'll respond to it. He'll do, you know, something. And a lot of times like that's just like you're running yourself in circles, you know, because people are going to constantly, you know, like you don't have to respond to everything. And like Bloomberg, he didn't respond to anything ever because he, you know, felt completely insulated from the entire world, which was like the other extreme, you know. So like I think that like we need someone to be able to understand how to make, you know, the nut the nuts and bolts behind the scenes work done well. Um, and I think that's something that De Blasio has really struggled with. We appreciate the candor and just getting right in there. As a fellow management and leadership specialization, I totally get it, right? Like spotting mediocrity, spotting um, leadership that could be better. It's also an important thing to take into account with all the other skills that you're like, can they manage budgets? Can they do, can they do that? But are they actually good at managing people and things is also a really important part of the conversation. Uh, and just to kind of pivot a little bit, uh, Juan started touching on it uh, in his comment in regards to racial justice and social justice issues uh, taking us back to June of 2020, uh, our city erupted and things that have been brimming and were under the surface for a long time, pack COVID-19 on top of that unemployment and everything else, we saw a lot more calls for the city to do more to and demanding more of New York City as it as it pertains to racial justice issues, whether that involved policing, whether that look at other areas of the city. And I wanted to hear from you all, um, taking from June 2020 to now, the rise in attacks against um, Asian identifying folks in our communities. How is your campaign looking at diversity and racial justice? And what are the, some of the things you think are important uh, if elected and what things are you committed to um, making happen? Yeah, I'm happy to start on this. So, I, I mean, I think the violence or the anti-Asian rhetoric has started since the pandemic began um, here, right? It started people, I've had, I've seen racism, blatant racism, uh, constituents that unfortunately fall in that bracket saying that they'll support your candidacy if you vow to close Chinese restaurants, right? That type of, that type of derogatory uh, sentiment towards a certain demographic, blaming them for a pandemic. Um, so it's something that we're addressing under no circumstances, racism uh, or violence ever welcome uh, or inevitable, right? We can change that. We can change the dynamic. We can change that conversation. So that's why I want to implement when I say housing justice is racial justice is because I genuinely mean it. That's why we also want to expand bilingual education because we do have an Asian contingency here in the district um, and they should be supported just like any other demographic. We should be expanding, uh, we should be amplifying that multiculturalism um, and making sure that everyone has access to a dignified and, 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 say, and set up for success in the district. So um, using policy points, taking different avenues to make sure that diverse and immigrant New Yorkers are being supported as much as possible from their elected officials. Yeah, I agree with Juan. I think what we, you know, speaking about the, you know, anti-Asian attacks, um, I think more people need to come together to denounce that, right? It shouldn't be just Asians at their own rally, talk, you know, talking about denouncing it. We need, we need to have people from different faiths. Um, and that includes, you know, anti-Semitic attacks. It includes, it includes really any, any hate-fueled attack in our communities. Um, you know, during, um, during this, 
last year, we also saw um, an increase in anti-Semitic um, attacks and, um, you know, different markings across the city, like swastikas on synagogues. Um, and last year, in, in January of 2020, we um, held a rally, um, you know, against uh, anti-Semitism and people from all different faiths came out. And I think that's, you know, we need to show more solidarity, but we also need to stand up for each other. Um, I think also, you know, speaking about racial, racial justice and, you know, sort of rebuilding that trust between like local police officers, there needs to be, you know, reform within the police department. You're talking about, you know, cutting the budget, um, but then what what is actually going to be changed what is the culture that's going to be changed so i think you know part of that and something that you know i i am advocating for is you know an elected civilian complaint review board the ccrb um which would actually you know really increase accountability and and put in tangible you know enforceable actions against um you know police officers who who um you know who are bad um a residency requirement for new nypd um you know recruits um you know if they're serving you know our communities they really should live here they really should understand what people go through um you know having the police commissioner go through the confirmation process in the city council once the mayor nominates because right now the mayor just picks one and that person is in right they don't need any um sort of um any sort of confirmation uh and it's also like reimagining what community policing looks like right we have the current neighborhood coordination officers which are basically sector police officers um and they are supposed to like patrol the neighborhood they're supposed to have relationships with the small business owners but you know you really don't see these people um and they also host these hyper local meetings uh quarterly every three months and oftentimes at these meetings there's more police officers than members of the public so that's you know waste in overtime funds um it's a waste of resources and it's sort of like meetings to pat yourself on the back but it's nothing comes out of it um if you're going to have these meetings you you might as well engage the people that you're supposed to be engaging in that sector um so that includes you know better marketing um and actually involving the stakeholders in the community um so there's a number of things that you know have to be done um but of course the the city council won't be able to do it alone or a council member won't be able to do it alone we need buy-in from um the new mayor uh but you know this really has to be um an effort that is at the forefront for the next uh, city government yeah so our, my district has seen an, an uptick in hate crimes across the board for multiple communities in the last few years and i think it's been um something that's like very much very important and an issue that uh, we need to like really navigate and it's there's obviously rallying for the response and being public and visible but it's also the longer term uh, work that is takes a lot of effort to build. And I think that's like kind of segues into community safety issues. Um, so like I was editing a video to put out about budget justice, which was kind of essentially defunding the police before that term kind of got used more a little bit, but you know, allocating funding from over policing into social services to like deal with long-term issues and uh, things that we associate with crime, really just like violence in people's life, you know, and you know, and trying to find ways to like mitigate that through things not just over policing it. And then like that happened, I was working on that right before uh, the George Floyd protest started. So that was something that I was actually planning to center my campaign with from the very beginning. And I'd say that that, um, you know, cause I'm a, you know, abolitionist, you know, and I would say that I'm like probably on like the, the, that side of things, maybe a little bit further than most folks. But I think, you know, the real response in terms of like, you know, if you just tell people, it's like, yeah, we want to like spend money on making sure that like programs some youth employment program stays you know so that young people have 
job opportunities. We want to make sure that we have a non, you know, police response to people with mental health crisis because most 911 calls, a lot of 911 calls are related to like mental health episodes and like having resources for people so that you, you know, when you're in school and you, that stuff can get like seen and addressed earlier in life rather than like manifesting for a long time. And then obviously you've already talked about housing a fair amount. So these are like things that you can talk to people like, yeah, we should fund these things. And then it's like, okay, where should the funding come from? You know, well, you know, I have an, you know, an agency here that um, it has an incredibly large budget, you know, that is, you know, not necessarily, you know, responding to, um, you know, people's needs. And like, we can talk on about like the, the historically racist, you know, nature of policing in itself, you know, but, you know, I think that that conversation is not a hard, it was harder conversation as people think it is, you know, people understand, you know, alternatives to policing, people understand funding your community, and people understand these things. And I think that that is what I think helps create, you know, uh, a wholeness among like how people are living in, in in a community and then and, and that is like an open conversation that we can have about like the things that we need in order for people to feel safe and feel like you know you know feel supported and you know and we can support that and i think that you know um it's just the alternative of what other people's other communities get like if you look in the a really well-funded, you know, suburb, you know, you'll have as many, you know, social workers as you want in the school. And then if, you know, something happens, you get, they have their own form of restorative justice. You know, they'll call your mom to come pick you up because you shoplifted, you know, something, you know, it's like, that is an infrastructure that people understand. And like, we've been trying to center the idea that like, we can have this in, in a way that, you know, centers the fact that communities have been underfunded and not had this for so long. Thank you everyone uh, for sharing. I can't believe it, but we're pretty much near the end. Uh, the conversation has been amazing so far. So this will be my last question. And it really stems from um, what Brandon just discussed. Uh, my background is in community engagement and organizing as well. And so thinking about visioning and like imagining new futures is really a part of it. So like while you have these policy issues in front of you, I think it's critical that we take time to think about what would this look like, kind of removing some of what's already in existence and really trying to imagine what we want for our communities. And so the scenario here is it's 2025, right? So we're, you know, four years in the future. Uh, what do you see? What are city government services like? Uh, what has changed? Uh, just talk me through what you know your vision or your imagination would be for New York City four years in the future, if anything is possible. 2025? 2025. 2025. All right, so for 2025, what I would love to see in New York City is a housing first model. So this shifts away from the shelter model, making sure that those that are in need, those that are facing evictions, those that are facing homelessness are provided dignified, stable, and affordable housing for every single New Yorker, uh, making sure tenants are protected, making sure those that are facing foreclosures are protected, um, ensuring that housing is the forefront of our movement, that every New Yorker has a dignified place to live. Um, and we are amplifying all various social service spaces, mental health spaces, employment spaces. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. I'll say, I'm trying to think like what what is possible by that time? I'm like literally trying to like envision it in like- Imagine anything is possible. Yeah, like I'm too stuck into like, all right, well, how long will it take for this to get implemented? Like I need to be, sometimes be a little less in the weeds. I mean, so 
I, we would have passed near healthcare for all, you know, so, and we would have the NYC care program would be well supported. So pretty much we wouldn't have uh, um, uninsured folks in the city. We would have like, it would be like Red Vienna. We would have like all these like really great, well-integrated uh, housing developments that are inter integrated, multiple communities, multiple F uh, economic groups, you know, and, and like people really brought into the development of it. You know, uh, we would have a resiliency plan. So like the whole city will have a really deep, strong plan in terms of like dealing with uh, increasing of, uh, uh, you know, climate change and like the increasing of flooding, you know, so make sure that people will feel supported and being able to live there in perpetuity, um, you know, and we would just have like, God, we would just have the schools would just get the money they're deserved by the state and city and like the Department of Education would be su super well run in like facilitating people in their community understanding how to navigate this, you know, like we would have like, people would just understand what how government worked, you know, like would have higher turnout, people would be participating in it, you know, and people would, you know, feel that they could like connect to what the, what the agencies are doing or not doing in their community. You know, that I feel like is like the big thing because like people don't even know where to start. Something comes up, you know, you don't know where to go. You know, you're not going to necessarily have an access to, you know, a legislator directly, you know. So I think really like those policies, but also just this general ability to navigate government in a way that, you know, other people can do is just like what I would love to see in the future. Uh, yeah, I mean, piggybacking off of that, I mean, it's so hard to imagine, you know, four years from now. Um, I think a lot of it is also, you know, making sure that our hospitals and healthcare facilities have the resources that they need for us to be prepared, you know, if and when there will be a next, um, you know, epidemic or pandemic, um, so that we're prepared. And that includes, you know, minimum staffing ratios, you know, PPE requirements, um, you know, making sure that anybody who needs healthcare can get it, that includes preventative uh, care. Um, you know, it's also fully funding our schools, reducing overcrowding in our local schools, uh, expanding um, STEM programming, um, expanding dual language programs, uh, you know, making sure that our, you know, small businesses, you know, have the protections in place, like, like finally passing the Small Business Job Survival Act. Um, there's just, you know, so much that, you know, we can we can talk about you know four years down the line um but a lot of it is you know just making sure new yorkers have the resources that they need not just to survive survive but also thrive um you know we we are in a turning point right now um covid19 has exposed you know the deepest fault lines in our society but it's also giving us the opportunity um to reimagine um and rebuild in a different way right not just go back to how things were back to normal because back to normal everything wasn't so great right we had we had a lot of problems before the pandemic um yeah so it's 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 really centering the community making sure that the resources are there um but then also, um, you know, I think a, a big factor is civics reform. Uh, too many people don't know what the city council is. I, I am hopeful that four years down the line, we can, we can change that. We can make people more involved in community and civic affairs. Um, we need, you know, the city council has, you know, you can arguably say that has one of the greatest impacts on people's everyday lives, uh, the decisions that, you know, the council makes. Uh, and when I go around talking to people, a lot of people have no idea what the city council is. I think part of that is, you know, a fault in our education system. Uh, so definitely civics reform um, would be up there as well. 
Well, thank you all for uh, indulging me in that last question and just taking the time out to dream with me. Uh, this has been a really amazing conversation. Uh, it's gone by so fast. Thank you all for sharing your day with us and talking about your platforms and what you envision for the futures of New York City. Uh, early voting starts uh, June 12th. The last day is June 22nd. So if, or New if you're a New Yorker, you're out there, make sure you get out to the polls. Um, and that's it. Thank you so much.